from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Richard Hollinger on August 24, 2015. Richard is an archivist and historian who has conducted research on the history of the Baha'i faith in North America and in the Middle East. His recent publications include An Iranian Enclave in Lebanon, Baha'i Students in Beirut, 1906-40, Distant Relations, Iran and Lebanon in the Last 500 Years, and Wonderful and True Visions, Magic, Mysticism, and Millennialism in the Making of the American Baha'i Community. Richard has also taught courses at the Wilmette Institute. We talk about his current research in Baha'i history in regard to the promotion of race unity in America. We discuss this aspect of his research in the interview as well as his involvement in the Wellman Institute. I started the interview by asking Richard where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in California. My father had a job that took him around the state, and so we moved a number of times. So, you know, I spent a lot of time in one place called San Luis Obispo until I was about 12, and then after that we moved up to the Bay Area San Luis Obispo, when I was growing up there, was sort of a traditional small-town, uh, 1950s America <laughs> kind right. of place, fairly tame and conventional, but it was a college town. I do remember there were uh, beatniks around <laughs> when I was growing up. It was a nice place to grow up, and then when we moved to the Bay Area, it was, it was a bit of a shock. We lived in an area south of San Francisco for a year that was right next to some housing projects and went to a school that was radically different, or at least the kids were radically different from what I was used to. And, you know, there were, I wouldn't say there were a lot of drugs, and it was a little early for that, but, you know, people were, even in elementary school, were drinking and there were fights and switchblades and that kind of thing. We were just there for a year, and then we moved to the East Bay in a suburb called Hayward. And I guess that was just like any other suburb. It was neither here nor there. My high school years were during the sort of the heyday of the 60s. I graduated in 1970. And so I was very much caught up into the counterculture political, anti-war movement, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And what was religious life like growing up? It was not very appealing to me, <laughs> actually. We went to a mainstream Methodist church, and I wasn't very interested in it. I didn't find it very meaningful. I thought everybody there were hypocrites, spouting a particular ideal and not really trying to live that. Well, I guess at some point during my high school years, I I came to believe in God because I didn't think that the universe could have been 
created without a cause, I guess you'd say. With it. I think we used to call it the uncaused cause. So I came to believe, you know, a divine being. But that was until the end of high school, about as far as I went religiously in terms of my beliefs. As I said, I was very much caught up in the counterculture, which had some religious dimensions to it, to be sure. And I did get involved in those to a certain extent. And actually, that's kind of how it inadvertently led me to the Baha'i faith. Mm-hmm. So this was like, when you say maybe spiritual leanings with the counterculture, you're talking about like maybe transcendental meditation or something to that effect? There was a kind of thing that grew out of Haight-Ashbury. They called it Monday Night Class, and it was taught by Steve Gaskin, who has sort of a cult following, actually died a few months ago. It became quite a substantial movement and eventually gave rise to the farm. If you've heard of that, I don't know. Yes. If you have. The farm is in Tennessee. So in 1970, right after I got out of high school, or maybe a little before, he went on a speaking tour and took a bunch of his group with him on buses. So there was this caravan of maybe 40, 50 buses. People were living on them in sort of communal style. And I was on that for a, a short period of time, for a couple of months. And so it was on one of those buses that I actually first heard of Baha'u'llah. Baha'u'llah being the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith. Yes. There was somebody on there who was trying to explain the concept of avatar, which is a Hindu concept that teachers come from time to time to provide a message to humanity. Anyway, this person said that, well, there was even, you know, there's avatars all the time. There was even one in 19th century Persia. And she said she had a book by him and produced it a little bit later. And that's how I first heard of Baha'u'llah. Now, was that person an adherent to the Baha'i faith? No. Mm -hmm. The ethos of the 1960s spiritual movement was very much one of inclusion. And so people would incorporate whatever teachings they found attractive into their own set of beliefs and... I think this person was just drawing on the, in this case, the hidden words for her own inspiration, but no, she wasn't a Baha'i, at least not in the sense that members of the community would think of as a Baha'i. Right. So the hidden words is one of the works of Baha'u'llah. So I left the caravan uh, when the bus I was on broke down, and a friend of mine from my hometown, who was also on on that. We decided to hitchhike down to Florida, and while I was there, uh, Baha'i picked me up and started to talk to me about the Baha'i faith. We lived in Cocoa Beach for a while, and this person gave me a ride from Fort Lauderdale to Cocoa Beach, which <laughs> is quite a long way. And in the end, he gave me a copy of The Hidden Words, and so I had my first Baha'i book at that point of my own, and I carried that around for many months and thought it was quite inspirational. But I didn't really think it was for me at the time, and 
I gave it to my sister, and she very quickly became a Baha'i. Interesting. A couple of years later, you know, after I had investigated it quite quite a bit more thoroughly and read a lot more books, I too became a Baha'i. What was the turning point that you were thinking the Baha'i faith was not for you to actually becoming a Baha'i? What was that transition for you? I was part of the drug culture of the time, and I knew Baha'is didn't approve of that. And so while I found it all very inspirational, I wasn't ready to give that up, not at that time. And I think that was true of a lot of people who were exposed to the Baha'i faith at that time. They just were too ingrained in that counterculture to take that step. But once you had outgrown the need to do the drugs, your attraction to the Baha'i faith was really no different, I guess. No, I became to uh, go from thinking it was something that had truth in it, from which we could draw inspiration, to thinking it was much more central, a much more central place in the hierarchy of truth, I guess you might say. I thought that it had some exclusive claims that the other sources of inspiration really couldn't lay claim to. Can you give me some examples, Richard? Well, I don't know if I can give examples. That was how I felt. Mm -hmm. And I can't say that it was caused by anything in particular, except that what was happening in my life, it seemed like I couldn't turn a corner without meeting a Baha'i. They were everywhere all of a sudden. (laughs) Once I had come to sort of understand it was true, I felt like I was being forced into it, where I was, you know, there were going to be heavy consequences to pay if I didn't own up to the fact that I I knew it to be true. When you say consequences, what do you mean? Well, I thought that you don't go against the will of God. Mm. There's certain responsibility to knowledge? Yeah, basically, if you could think of it in terms of karma, I suppose, that Mm. if you don't pass that test... You're just going to keep having the same thing over and over and over, and, and things are going to get worse and worse and worse till you do what you're supposed to do. So how much later, after your sister, did you become a Baha'i? I think about two years later, she became a Baha'i in 1971, and I became a Baha'i in 1973. Mm-hmm. So what direction did your life go in after that happened? What, what direction was your life going in, maybe, when that happened? You know, the counterculture was ending. I was probably looking for a new identity, and I was in college. And at the time, I thought I wanted to start a career in television and film. So I was in college to study that. But what did you end up studying then? A few years later, I started studying history because I guess my exposure to the film and television industry didn't make it very appealing as I started to have some contact with the Hollywood networks. And I just fell in love with history. You know, it wasn't something I consciously set out to do, but I just did. When I started deepening in the Baha'i faith, then learning more about its history, I couldn't get enough. I still can't get enough. All these years later, I could spend all my time doing Baha'i history and, well, even history in general, but especially Mm -hmm. 
history of the Baha'i faith. I find it intrinsically interesting. Yeah, if somebody wanted a recommendation for a book on the history of the Baha'i faith, what would you recommend? I'd probably recommend Peter Smith's book, and I've forgotten the full title, but it's something like From Shi'i Set to World Religion, something like that. Mm-hmm. It was based on a PhD dissertation he did at Cambridge, and it was published quite a long time ago, but it's still available. Mm-hmm. If you were going to read just one book, yeah. that would probably be what I'd recommend. Mm. And so, what did you end up doing with your love of history? You know, there aren't a lot of jobs in Baha'i history. (laughs) (laughs) I went to UCLA. I studied Middle Eastern history. I was in a PhD program. In the end, I dropped out of that program because people just weren't getting jobs. I just didn't see a future there. I did have my master's in Middle Eastern history, and I went into a program in public history and historic preservation with the idea of becoming an archivist, which is, in fact, what I did. So my researching and writing has been an application then in my spare time, not so much my job, as it were, but it's just as important to me. Mm. So I spent, let's see, from about last 20, 25 years, I guess, as a professional archivist in various places. Most of it, well, I was in New York and Hong Kong, and now now I'm in Maine, in various academic institutions. That's a wide arc, New York, Hong Kong, and Maine. (laughs) In the course of this, I became very interested in North American Baha'i history, which is where I started out. That's where most of my research has been in recent years, trying to get time to write up some of the work I've done in the last, I don't know, five or ten years on Baha'i involvement in race relations, the civil rights movement of the 60s, but also the connections between that and the movements of the 40s and the 20s and even the teens when Baha'is first started becoming publicly involved in trying to better race relations. The movement has been under a variety of names over the years, and people call it different things. In the last few years, they've been calling this the long civil rights movement. What era are we referring to when you say the long civil rights movement? Well, it was a term that was coined originally to show that the civil rights movement had its roots at least back to the 1940s. But the tactics that were used in the civil rights movement were used by the labor movement before them, many of them. And they started experimenting with those tactics in Chicago in particular when the Congress of Racial Equality was started there in the 1940s. But I I would say... You can track the lineage all the way back to the beginning of the century, and probably further, if fewer won't to do it. It's the same struggle in different forms, in different names. But what interested me was partly how Baha'is came to be involved and came to have a pretty significant role and influence early on, and then how in the 1960s, 
Baha'is still had a role that is visible, but they didn't talk about it very much. Because the 1960s movement started with sit-ins, which were thought to be illegal by a lot of legal authorities at the time, uh, a lot of the prominent Baha'is didn't think Baha'is should, you know, being involved in protests. Right. Even during the 60s, although the Baha'is may not have participated in civil disobedience, they were one of the few communities in the South that was holding integrated meetings. Is that a... They, they were the first. Okay. They were absolutely the first. And then I think the Mennonites and Quakers followed. It was very dangerous. And Baha'is had to be had to exercise a, a lot of discretion to to be able to do that. And then there were problems. I know if it was dangerous for the African Americans, Dr. William Smith, who I interviewed, he told a story where he was invited to go to a fireside when he was a teenager with one of his friends, and when he realized that they were going into a white area, they literally were ducking down into the seats as they were driving to that Baha'i meeting in a white area because exactly. it was a dangerous time. But if whites were caught in a meeting like that, it could be quite dangerous for them as well. I'm not saying that whites were treated the same as blacks, but... Oftentimes, the citizens' councils or, or the Klan would see collaboration by whites as being treasonous. They called them race traitors, and they were sometimes treated even worse than blacks. You know, for the most part, Baha'is escaped the worst of it. There were alleged Klan attacks, but I'm not sure they were really, really from the Klan. But, you know, they were intimidating, and, uh, you know, there was some violence. You also mentioned that there were examples of uh, early involvement by the Baha'is in this civil rights movement back in the 40s or even the teens. Maybe you can give us some examples of that? Well, if you go back to the beginning of the NAACP, for example, I counted, I think, four or five Baha'is and the leadership. There were several by the late teens, maybe earlier. I know that Albert Hall, who was a Baha'i from uh, Minneapolis, was one of the first members in Minneapolis and was on their executive board. And there were Baha'is from New York and Washington, D.C., who had leadership positions very early. And also early on, earlier 20th century, didn't the Baha'is initiate a race amity conference? Yeah, they did. And there were things that preceded that as well. But yeah, they did the race amity conferences, which were really put Baha'is on the map with that first generation, that early generation of leaders from the Urban League and the NAACP. And they really made a lot of friends. I found in the records of the NAACP uh, really remarkable statements about Baha'is from some of the early leaders and and how they trusted them. That was a very successful series of conferences 
it really made certain the Baha'is were integrated into the movement. That was all for the good. You know, even after the race amity conferences ended, that process still continued. But it was done more by local communities and individual Baha'is who had committed themselves. People like Luli Matthews was a, a very important supporter of the NAACP early on. She lived in New York until I think the 40s, and then she moved to Denver where she played a less significant role. She had cultivated a very close relationship with W.E. Dubois, and she was the one who was financing his literary awards. They gave out a Dubois Award each year. That was something that she had started. And she really had the ear of the leadership of the NAACP, certainly. I don't think she was particularly involved in the Urban League, but, you know, there were quite a few Baha'is who actually were local directors of Urban League chapters. I was surprised to find out that almost all the major Urban League centers by, let's say, 1945, had been led by a Baha'i at one time or another. I'm thinking of Washington, Boston, New York, Cleveland, later on, Tucson. The one in Los Angeles may have been led by a Baha'i. I'm not entirely clear about that because he's got a very common name, and I'm not sure it's the same person. Now, there was also a prominent black lawyer back in the early 20th century that was a Baha'i who devoted his life to race amity. Louis Gregory was his name. Sure. Maybe you could tell folks what his contribution was. He made a really major decision at a certain point. He encountered the Baha'i faith about 1906, if I recall right. And I don't think this has been published anywhere. I'll just tell you that he had learned about this faith, and he had this girlfriend who later became a Baha'i and was married to someone else. But they went to the same summer resort every year down in Virginia. They were discussing the faith, and he told her, I just have this one thing I have to make sure of, and that's the race question. If that matter is settled, then I'm going to join and and go whole hog behind this movement. And so during his pilgrimage, he did exactly that. And he was totally reassured. And after that, he spent the rest of his life as a kind of uh, traveling lecturer on behalf of the Baha'i movement. And he just traveled continuously until his retirement. And he made just enormous amounts of contacts, and he had quite an influence. I should probably tell you that most of my research on this has not been done using Baha'i archives. I've been looking into mainly the non-Baha'i sources, I guess you'd say, uh, NAACP records, Urban League, CORE, and individual personal papers, And Louis Gregory is all over the place. (laughs) He had an impact on people, and they remembered him. He was quite well-known, certainly in the black community and in the community that sympathized with the advancement 
of colored people, as they said at the time. A lot of his admirers were white, but he had quite an impact in black circles, too. Why were the Baha'is so involved in the race amity or race unity? It's very interesting. It's obviously part of the Baha'i teachings that mankind is one and that there should be no differences based on race or ethnicity or gender or, you know, any of those typical things that create boundaries between people. It wasn't spelled out that explicitly in the writings of Baha'u'llah. The American Baha'is had begun to figure it out even before Abdu'l-Bahá spelled it out for them very explicitly when he came to the U.S. in 1912. And, you know, at that point, he was quite explicit that Baha'is had to have integrative meetings, period. It is true for safety reasons. They made some exceptions for introductory meetings. But anything that was a congregational meeting, let's say, that had to be integrated. That never changed. You know, there have been other religious groups that took a took a tough line on this, too. Yeah, I know the Quakers were very much in the vanguard of... Yeah, and at one time the Catholics, I think, were in certain places. Yeah, the Quakers were more consistently. But Baha'is were really known for this in the black community. I mean, you just find them mentioned everywhere. When you consider that there were maybe 1,500 Baha'is in the community in 1900 and 1910, and they were already known for this. By the 1960s, how many Baha'is were maybe 10,000 in the country, maybe 12? Yet, they were known among the leaders of the civil rights movement, not necessarily the rank and file, but they all knew Baha'is, all the national leaders, and quite a number of local leaders became Baha'is in fact, or were Baha'is to begin with, uh, in some cases. It's interesting that a group so small could have that kind of visible impact to even be noticed. I often fantasize what it would have been like, of course, if there had been two million Baha'is in 1960. The Baha'i faith would have been the civil rights movement. Mm. And now today, I think Baha'is are very much involved in local movements throughout the communities within the United States. In the book I'm writing, I'm I'm going to have a chapter called After the Marching Stopped. Hmm. After the Civil Rights Movement ended, the Black Power Movement began, and a lot of the white civil rights workers became involved in the anti-war movement, sort of splintered into a movement of movements. The Baha'is didn't really drop the ball. They continued doing what they were doing. But what they've been doing has always been done quietly anyway. So they were working on educating people, doing cross-cultural workshops and all those sorts of things that help break down prejudice are still doing that. I don't think it's as visible now Mm. as it has been in the past, but it's just as real. And, you know, when you think about it, if you look at the civil rights movement, all the sacrifices that were made and where we are now through political change, the situation for African-Americans isn't that much better 
than it was when you consider imprisonment, you know, mass imprisonment, the various forms of discrimination that that still exist despite the law. And, and there's all kinds of independent studies that show that it begins the first day of school and it continues on, you know, differentiated treatment, differentiated discipline. I don't know if you've read the new Jim Crow, but I think it spells out pretty clearly that the judicial system is almost... I guess you'd have to say systemically racist. Or oh, even the dangers of walking down the street. Yes, exactly. Exactly. The dangers of walking down the street is depressing. I mean, it, it does point in the direction, I think, that Baha'is have continued to work in, and, and that is actually working below the law, working to eliminate prejudice. And it's worked pretty darn well in the Baha'i community. Mm-hmm. We're not perfect by any means, but what I've gotten from studying this history is that we've always been a generation ahead. And it reminds me that there have been some pretty focused personal initiatives. One that comes to mind is when Nathan Rutstein was alive, he initiated the Institute for the Healing of Racism. Right. And And there have been a number of individual initiatives like that. I think, actually, uh, William Smith was involved in one of them, too, the the man you just uh, mentioned. Right. He's actually got a center for race amity, I think, out of Wheaton College. Right. And I believe that Joy DeGruy right. has founded some... I mean, there's at least a dozen such initiatives. I haven't really been able to track them all. It's a little easier to do things historically than it is to do contemporary research on them. But I do know they're out there. They show up in dissertations now and again, people who study the different models of intercultural relations have looked at Baha'i-inspired approaches. Prior to your most recent investigation into race relations in the Baha'i faith, you've done historical work in relation to Middle Eastern studies. Is that an accurate statement? I've done some. I haven't written too much. I did publish something about the Baha'i students in Beirut in the early 20th century and and how that facilitated a transition away from traditional Muslim thinking. How the Baha'is started asking Baha'is to go to Beirut for college, mostly from Iran, but there were Baha'is around the Near East who also went there, and they became a really cohesive force within the university. I mean, they were maybe 10% of the population of students, but they showed certain kinds of leadership qualities that the leadership of the university was looking for at that time. They were international in their viewpoint. They favored the elimination of prejudice and so forth. And that's the sort of culture they were trying to develop, so they became pretty influential for a while there. And at the same time, what what happened is the traditional leaders of the Baha'i community in Iran and the Middle East more generally had been basically, you know, Moshe Hetz, uh, Muslim clerics. What happened then is that a generation of Baha'is started being educated outside of the Muslim traditional schooling and got a, a more Western education it helped for the Baha'i community to break from its 
the Islamic milieu in which it was born. Yeah, maybe you could describe for folks what the relationship of the Baha'i faith is to Islam in that regard. Baha'is view religions as a series of progressive lessons that have been sent to humanity from God. So Christianity was one lesson, and Islam came a bit later and had a message for a somewhat different time period, and then the Baha'i faith came in the 19th century and was articulated more for modernity than previous religious messages. In the same way that Christianity has its roots in Judaism because of where it emerged and who the early followers of it were, likewise the Baha'i faith, which originated in Iran, has its roots in Islam, and particularly the Shi'i branch of Islam. Some of its teachings are formulated in a uh, manner that was familiar to the Muslims to which it was first given. I'm trying to remember this line from this book on Muhammad that I can't remember at the moment, but it was roughly that he had to speak to the audience mm. he had. Likewise, every messenger of God has to speak to the audience he has at the time. You can't veer too far from the culture in which it's born or no one will understand or accept or even hear it. So every religion does have its roots in the culture in which it was born. But it can be gradually emancipated from that as it spreads to other parts of the world and people see other ways of viewing it and approaching it. As you know, when the Baha'i faith came to America, people viewed it from a Christian tradition. Baha'is do accept Islam, of course, but they were still Christians. Most Baha'is in the U.S. are probably born Christians, I would guess. And so we still aren't totally emancipated from that viewpoint either. And I guess uh, looking at your bio on the Wilmette Institute, I noticed that you did some research in that area too about the Baha'i faith, a title of a work called Wonderful and True Visions, Magic, Mysticism, and Millennialism in the Making of the American Baha'i Community. In that paper, I was looking at the very beginnings of the Baha'i lessons that were given in this country by a man from Syria, Ibrahim Khairullah, who was a Christian and became a Baha'i. I was just looking at how those teachings and the community evolved in tandem. The long and short of it is that I think it was a very American message that was formulated in the course of the first few years. It got reshaped and batted around until it became a pretty powerful message for the Protestant community in places like Chicago and New York, many of them interested in other religious movements, whether they regarded themselves as Christians or not, they were being exposed to other religious ideas through Freemasonry and various lodges and theosophy and a variety of spiritual teachers who were uh, preaching in both. New York and Chicago particularly. Now you're on the faculty of the Wilmette Institute. I was wondering if you could give folks just a quick 
description of what the Wilmette Institute is and then what your role is in that? The Wilmette Institute is a, a sort of unusual organization. I think it started out with the idea of doing college-level courses that are either about the Baha'i faith in one way or another or provide some background that might enhance people's understanding of the Baha'i teachings. For example, courses on Islam or Christianity might you know, enhance their understanding. It isn't specifically for the Baha'i community, although I think most of the people in classes are Baha'is, but not all of them, and it's certainly open to anyone who has an interest. It's taught in a sort of collective way, so there may be four or five faculty for a course. They're all online. It's mainly text-based. They don't use some of the technologies that are used in college courses today because I think a lot of people wouldn't be able to access them if they did. In a kind of unusual way, collaboratively, you know, I'm occasionally teach one, or co-teach, I should say, one of the courses. I often feel as much as a, like a student as a teacher because it's sort of a group of people learning together as much as anything. So what courses do you quote-unquote facilitate? Well, I don't do any of them regularly. Just occasionally, I you know, usually I'm asked to fill in when they don't have enough people in some area that they think I know about. Usually it's some area of Baha'i history. I, I think I have helped teach the class on reading Baha'i writings that my wife started. I did co-teach one course on archives. I tried to space them out because I also teach online at the university where I work. So I don't want to spread myself too thin. Well, Richard, I want to thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and your work with us. Sure. Yeah, my pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Richard Hollinger, archivist and historian. He is also a faculty member of the Wilmette Institute an online learning platform sponsored by the Baha'i Faith. You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on a Baha'i perspective. Righteousness is weak and faints, and unrighteousness exalts in pride. 
Then my spirit arises on earth for the salvation of those who are good, for the destruction of evil in men, for the fulfillment of the kingdom of righteousness, I come to this world from age to age. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. To order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice, from henceforth, even forever. of the religion of the Arabian and the overthrow of the kingdom of Iran and the degradation of the followers of my religion. A descendant of the Iranian kings will be raised up as a prophet. shall I be the last. In due time, another Buddha will arise in the world, a holy one, a supremely enlightened one, endowed with wisdom and conduct, auspicious, knowing the universe, an incomparable leader of men, a master of angels and mortals. He will reveal to you the same eternal truths which I have taught you. He will preach his religion, glorious at the goal, in the spirit and in the letter. He will proclaim a religious life, holy, perfect, and pure, such as I now proclaim. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Oh, 
God says, God is the light of the heavens and the earth. His light is like a niche in which is a lamp, the lamp encased in glass, the glass as it were a brilliant star, lit from a blessed tree, an olive, of neither the east nor of the west, whose oil is beginning to burst into light, though no fire has touched it. Light upon light, God guideth whomsoever he willeth to his light, and of all things God is knowing. Come 
People ask me why I'm always on the bright side When there's so much going down on the other side It's like I live in a bubble with no trouble And problems don't exist I check on them, that ain't the case at all It goes back to the time when I was very small I didn't mind the size and age My papa used to say You can always look at the negative But you should always live in the positive So I try every day to live in that way
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.